In the period from 2001 to 2013, these parties individually or together appeared in family court 65 times. At the St. Catherine's Courthouse, they are more tenants than litigants. Speaking of the mother, the judge said, if her current relationship fails, she should seek counseling with the view of determining why she has no talent for picking a mate. Alternatively, she should not live with or marry another man without the written permission of six of her closest friends, who no doubt will see what she so far has failed to see. Turning to the father, the court said, the father is a 55-year-old self-employed painter, sometimes likable, frequently articulate, always passionate. He has been married, divorced, and is a grandfather, and like so many of the poor souls who amble into family court, he has not learned from his mistakes. He's too busy perfecting them. He dances to the tune of a different drummer. In the footnote, the judge notes that the father is, in fact, a drummer. Moving on, the judge says, in a trial involving self-represented litigants, my expectations are low. All I ask is that they be clothed. If they can fake civility toward each other and pretend to be respectful of the court, that is a merciful bonus. Welcome to the Family Law Now podcast. Today we're talking about runaway train and using collaborative practice to derail high conflict court cases, which is one that I just described. Today we're joined by two guests, Walida Clark, who is a very seasoned and experienced litigator. She's also a collaborative trained lawyer. She's a recent RVer. How's the RVing coming along? Oh, it's great. Good weather, bad weather. We're just out there enjoying our home on the road. Welcome. Thank you for being here today. We're also joined by Jarrett Johnson, affectionately called JJ. He's a celebrity in his own mind. (laughs) Father of two young children. You getting any sleep? Uh, As my crow's feet will uh, tell the story, Russ, I'm not getting too many hours a night right now. (laughs) Your daughter participated in one of our conference calls the other day. That's right. Uh, it's, it's not foreign in my house to have a child crying in the background of one of our professionals' calls. I thought it was your client at first, but I wasn't sure. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the analogy. So when I think of running away train, I think of that movie from the 70s, where you got this train going as fast as it can go, and it's gaining speed, and it's going to get derailed. Uh, either, and when we use the analogy in a court setting, it gets derailed for several reasons, usually at trial, using the quote I just used as an example where the judge is dealing with two self-represented litigants. Oftentimes, these people run out of money, they fire their lawyers, or they maintain their lawyers and they spend a good part of their family wealth on litigation. So that's what we're talking about here today. We're talking about pulling high-conflict court cases out of court, looking at collaborative practice to help these families find a better way. So screening, Jared, what do we look at? What what are we looking for when we screen these files? Uh, Thanks, Russ. Uh, First, I just want to say congratulations. I heard your son just graduated from law school. Yeah, very proud. Thank you, Jared. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, I mean, screening is very important um, for the collaborative process. we use screening tools. We use screening tools in the collaborative process with respect to domestic violence. Uh, usually those screening tools have come from um, a separate institution and we've adopted that screening tool and we look for certain things on whether 
the client sitting in front of us is going to be suitable to the collaborative process. So when we're looking at these runaway train files, we're looking at whether we can pull this matter out of court and use this process of collaborative, um, collaborative law. One of the things where I tend to look for uh, anyways when I'm screening is, is, is my client or is the other party um, going to be able to sit in a room or in the same building? Are they going to be able to um, listen to professionals and take what the professionals are saying and um, with open ears? Um, are they going to be able to um, follow undertakings? Are they going to be able to um, complete homework tasks in the meetings. Part of the collaborative process is trust building. And so if the file's already in court um, and we're, we're deciding uh, whether it can be removed from court uh, to exercise the collaborative process, one of the things I'm screening for is, is there any merit to that, first of all? Because right. um, there needs to be that buy-in from the client uh, on the collaborative process, first and foremost, and um, basically, we don't want the collaborative process. It, it circles back to the why of collaborative process. Why do we do collaborative process? Well, it gives the public an option that may be more cost efficient and maybe more uh, emotionally and mentally efficient than the court process, but, but they have to buy into that and they have to be able to uh, work with the professionals, work with the other party um, to do that. So when we're screening, we're looking for red flags. Right. Right. I think you also need to screen your team. Uh, you and I have had some great success with collaborative files. Yeah. And sometimes you get overconfident, right? You think, okay, I can solve just about any bucket of crazy, for lack of a better word. <laughs> but there, we realize also that there's some litigants, there's some families that require court mm -hmm. and that they're not going to be, the collaborative process is just not going to be right for them. There may be issues of jurisdiction where you know there's going to be an impasse at some point in the file, and that's a specific example you and I went through. Um, so we need to be mindful in terms of what impasse might develop. Are the parties able to work creatively and when deciding, okay, let's pull this one out of court and do it collaboratively? Yeah, yeah, great point. Um, and, and to that point, um, one, of the, one of the screening tools we, we use, and I know you use this as well, Russ, and I know you use this as well, Wailita, is, is one of the uh, screening tools we use is asking the clients what their goals are right. in that process, what they see as their big picture uh, interests for the process. And one of the things we do is sometimes we turn it on the client and say, what do you think the other party's big goals are? And how do their goals impact your own? And if I have a client sitting in my office that spent the last year in family court and we're thinking about doing a runaway train and pulling it out of court and suspending the court process, if they tell me that their goals directly are opposed to the other party's goals and that one of their goals is to not let the other party meet any of their goals. <laughs> that may not be, a good start. That, exactly. That may be a big red flag and maybe right. we decide that taking it out of the court process maybe isn't the right idea. Just on that note, Brian Gilbraith and some lawyers out there have developed software to screen clients and they use it because they're doing block fee collaborative process and they'll offer two meetings full team for a set rate. But they use this software to gauge the level of conflict and whether or not the collaborative process is going to be right. 
that's another option that's out there. Now we've all done trials. Uh, some of us do trials each year. I know Walida is a very experienced trial lawyer. And it's easy for us to see the cons of high conflict court cases, but maybe Walida, you can tell us a little bit about how bad it can get. Well, the sky's the limit, or I guess the, the floor is <laughs> very low with respect <laughs> to these matters because uh, you can fight about anything you want to fight about. I mean, we've seen the cases. I remember one of the first cases I dealt with here in Lindsay, they were literally fighting over the cutlery. And even if you tried to explain, you know, just buy another set of cutlery, no, that didn't matter because he can't have it because it's mine. So a lot of the issues that you were talking about, Jarrett, it's really the question of what is their objective here. If their objective is going to be to make the other person miserable or to not let them have anything, there's no notion of fairness, then that's probably the reason that they are in court and the reason they're likely to stay in court for 45 or 54 appearances, however number that they're going to have. But at some point, I think even they get to a breaking point. They start to get shut down by judges or the costs start to affect them, either financial costs, time off of work, having to prepare their paperwork if they're self-represented. And those type of things maybe are the opening for them to reconsider moving to, to something else. Mm -hmm. But they can fight about every single issue if that's what they want to fight about, which is the way that I try to approach it to say, well, maybe even this one issue, we can look at diverting it. Is there another way we can approach this one issue? But I don't think we can expect that people who are in court and are already in a high conflict situation are just gonna be willing to fold those tents and say, let's all sit across the table from each other and be nice. I don't think that's realistic. I think we have to approach them from an issue by issue basis to, and start to build up the trust in the process, which then builds up the trust in the resolution. And unfortunately, there's lawyers who will take on that fight and fight every issue to the end. Um, a lot of, lot of what gets overlooked is the emotional cost to clients of going to court. I find that sometimes after a conference, I think things went well, we go into the hallway, and the client says, what just happened in there? Mm -hmm. Have no idea of the process, don't fully understand the judge's recommendation and completely lose control of their family and their assets because somebody else is going to make that decision for them. Well, and it's true that obviously the court process is one that they are relinquishing control and decision making to the judge up there in the robe, but at the same time, they've got to, I know it's a difficult position for us as lawyers because we, with the experience we have, are able to see down the road where things are likely to go. But it's difficult because you're actually serving your client. And if your client is saying, I want to fight about the cutlery, and you try to tell them, well, are there other ways, are there other things you can do? Ultimately, you're down to the situation of needing to take those instructions from your client. So while it's an unfortunate case, and certainly not my favorite to go in and litigate, if I have those instructions, and it's appropriate to do so based on some legal argument that they want to make, then I would take that on. and unfortunately have to continue in that conflict with yeah. them. You're still an advocate. That's right. Right. So let's talk about getting off the train. Why would, um, well I can tell you why people would want to get off the train. First of all, it's going to help them get closure. Uh, in the high conflict cases, they seem to never end until they get to trial. Then oftentimes somebody doesn't like the result of a trial and it can result in an appeal as well. 
So we have an overburden system, couple options that are available to us. One is simply to withdraw completely and go purely collaborative. So what would that involve, Jerry? Yeah, that would involve, um, <coughs> if both parties agree, um, we would actually be filing what's called the notice of withdrawal, serving and filing that document, which basically withdraws the case with or without cost consequences. But usually when it's on consent, it's without cost consequences. That basically means their action is completely withdrawn, and if they wanted to return to court, they'd have to do an originating process again. And start with new lawyers. And start with new lawyers. As you've referred to uh, several times, the purists of collaborative process like that option. They would argue that if you're going to do collaborative process, you need to absolutely withdraw from the court process right. because the idea is then you're committed to the collaborative process. You and the know, lawyers are committed to. And the lawyers are committed to as well. Um, so the runaway train concept is sort of a compromise between the different options of pulling out of the court process. Right. But and what we need to understand is um, lots of lawyers have hybrid practices where they go to court. They also do collaborative practice. And what we're talking about here today is blending those two. Uh, and coming up with some creative ways to get these cases out of the court system. Yeah. So, Walida, when we looked at amending, let's just say it's not going to be a purely collaborative process and we're going to upset some purists that we're changing the standard collaborative practice agreement. When we're amending the agreement, what are some of the things we need to look at? Well, it's. I hate to keep using the word issues, but it really depends on what the issues are going to be. So one example of that is we could articulate which parts of this are going to be done collaboratively. And by the same token, if that process breaks down, what option are we going to have? And you and I have been working on some hybrid type cases where we've defined very specifically, for example, if there's an issue about disclosure, right. if we've exhausted and used best efforts through collaborative, if there is still a problem with disclosure, we have left ourselves the opportunity through the participation agreement being amended, and obviously everyone agreeing to that, to put that issue, that specific issue, in front of a judge, and the judge can make a determination on that. We've done the same thing with issues like spousal support and custody, which at the beginning of the process, when we started to talk about that on a case that we have right now, it seemed like we were going to use it as, as an easy out, but it hasn't worked that way because in fact the parties have been working on their issues and we haven't even been speaking about the option of going right. to court. Right. But it's almost like a belt and suspenders option where we still have that if we need it. And that, in a case like the one I'm speaking of that we're working on right now, there was a very, very high level of distrust and that is why we needed to reassure, I needed in particular to reassure my client that if this collaborative process doesn't work, you're not throwing away what we've done and you're not throwing away the representation that I am giving you, we will be able to move forward. And we amended the agreement as well to allow the council to continue on the case if it moves into court. Right. And I think that is probably the widest example of hybridizing the opportunity to use collaborative and as well as have court if we need it with the hope that we won't need it. That's a great example. I was explaining to Jarrett, we had another case um, recently where uh, it was very helpful to have the court involved at a very high level. So it would be adjourned and we would be working collaboratively. 
but we hit a bit of a roadblock because there was a director and a shareholder we needed to get information from with respect to a business valuation that we're doing and they were not being cooperative uh, so we would be limited in the collaborative setting in terms of accessing that information we explained the issue to case, the case management judge. He gave us the order that uh, we needed directing this person to release the information, went back to the collaborative set it, and was able to settle the case. Um, so that, just enab that sort of empowers the collaborative process with some teeth in terms of if there's a third party we need information from or a shareholder or a director, the court still has the ability to make orders and the parties do not need to get new lawyers. And that point is, I mean, as much as I enjoy getting the business from the cases that have failed in collaborative and now need a new lawyer to go to court, and I've unfortunately, or fortunately for me, taken on a good number of those, having if that... If you're mine, too. Ex exactly. Yeah. Having that option, I mean, that's one of the downsides, is that in collaborative, with the 100% commitment from the pure collaborative model, then the person can't continue, the client can't continue with that lawyer. Not only can't they continue with the lawyer, but they have to start everything all over again, which is then a duplication of everything that they've done in the process. And I think increases their disillusionment because I hear about, well, we spent all this money and we got absolutely nothing. We can't even use the financial information, for example, that came from it. So I like using the, having the opportunity to use both of them in a parallel process if necessary or merging them together in the hybrid process. I think that is a really good way to serve the clients. Not every client because so many clients are going to be really well served in a pure collaborative model. Mm -hmm. It's just for those who initially we might say this case does not have a future in collaborative. It gives us a chance to actually bring more cases into collaborative by having that opportunity if we need to to move it into court. And I yeah. think that's the biggest thing we can achieve by having this opportunity to hybridize. And I think it, it goes to the flexible nature of collaborative process because as you said, I think there's still a huge portion of our population where a complete pure collaborative process is best suited for those families. Uh, I think it comes down to education and education to the clients right at the start of the process because the, the downside of using the hybrid model and the, the runaway train uh, concept is that the idea of collaborative process is private and confidential. So when clients are walking into collaborative meetings, their understanding is that it's going to be a private and confidential without prejudice opportunity to discuss everything and, and make admissions and, and talk about those things. Now if the process... Those are new clients walking into your office, they haven't uh, experienced two years of litigation. Right? Is that sort of what you're referring True. to? That's what I'm comparing right. it to. Okay. So, um, exactly. If, if um, those members of our society, um, you know, found out that then the same lawyers who have heard all these things that have been discussed in the meetings and were going to be representing against them at court, they would be very displeased with that concept. So the idea of the runaway train um, is that it's the clients are educated right away. If they're going right. to suspend their court or withdraw from court and enter into this process under this hybrid model, they need to be aware of the fact that everything they say in these meetings and everything that gets discussed, if that's agreed to, may or may not um, be informing possibly the lawyer who's going to be against them if it returns to court. 
So that needs to be discussed between the professionals right at the start um, on whether um, if the lawyers are going to be allowed to return with their same clients to court in the event that collaborative process doesn't break down, uh, are these meetings, what's the level of confidentiality and what's the level of... Uh, and that needs to be <clears throat> clearly set out because if it does return to court, the first thing you're going to do is get, a, you may get a letter from the other spouse's lawyer saying, I don't want you involved in right. the case, I didn't right. like the way you amended the agreement. Right. Is too vague, and you're going to have to uh, end the, end your representation. And we've experienced that, right, on, that's on right. files. So that's that's one thing that we're working on. So we have these clients; they're in court. Um, how do we sell them on this process, in terms of talking them off the train and taking a look at collaborative? What do you do, Jared? I I use examples. Um, I I gauge. Um, where my client is at in speaking to them and then I, I, I use examples of I think after screening them that they are a good fit for for the runaway train and we can suspend the court action and take it out in the collaborative process because I mean let's be honest it's the rare file in family court where the one client just wants to see the other client burn right. I mean 90% of our, our litigation files are good people who just want the fair result. And they and may not even know about collaborative. Exactly. They just ended up in court. I had a, I had a case uh, with, with Chantel Lawton, who's a local uh, collaborative lawyer as well. We spent two years in litigation, uh, very high conflict file. My client returned the matter to court a year later because one of the children wished a change to the parenting structure. We pulled it out of court after he started the court action. We did collaborative process. They settled it within four weeks. That's great. And they both said, if we knew this was available three years ago when we started two years of nasty litigation, right. we never would have done litigation. But and they just did $50,000 in legal fees. Exactly, right. exactly. So I, I use those kind of examples. You know, it's, it's like when people thought the world was flat. You, you can't just tell them it's not flat. The world's not flat? <laughs> Jerry, what are you telling me? <laughs> you, they don't believe you until they've experienced it. Right. And then they experience the, pro the process. They experience the neutral professionals wrapping around them. They experience the option generation that yeah. we can offer. And, and just discussing things, right? Mm -hmm. They don't get to discuss anything at court. They sit in the hallway, and, and, and our judges are fantastic and excellent, and we're spoiled in this area with fabulous judges. Yeah. But the reality is the court system's so backlogged, they sit there for most of the day, they never actually get to talk to each other. Or so, the judge. Or the rarely, judge. Yeah. So this is, I give those examples, and I, I let Or the lawyers know. go in chambers and something magical happens. They come out and say, okay, come back in three months. Exactly. Right. Well, and exactly. I, I think that your examples, Jared, of the, the positives of collaborative are really good, but I think we should also be reinforcing with them the negatives of court because right. the reality of the matter is there's a disconnect between what they think is going to happen in court and what can actually happen in court. It's well, nothing like you see on TV. And Well, not only is it not like in TV, it's not reasonable to expect that at a case conference everything's going to be decided. In fact, nothing is going to be decided unless there is a consent. So here you need a case conference, maybe another case conference, a settlement conference, trial management conference, you're going to have an exit pretrial. And let's not forget that if you actually want to have something decided, you're actually going to have to bring a motion in the interim. 
and it's coming to that experience, running into that brick wall over and over again, that is the thing I think that's going to convince them, let me try another way. That plus the delay that it's three months practically between every single appearance. And we're lucky that it's only three months because in some other jurisdictions that I am dealing with, we don't have a case conference, a very first case conference until November on a case that was started in May. Right. So yeah. that so three months is short. We're lucky it's short here, but it could be longer than that right. to be dealing with. So if you see those multiple appearances where you actually aren't getting anything done, and you then come back to the fact to say, what is it we need anyway? We need the facts. Let's talk about a financial issue. We need the facts. Once we have those facts, once we know what the bank balances are, once we know what the valuations are, is it really that difficult to come up with an answer to this? That's why encouraging them into collaborative and using, for example, financial professionals to help them get one set of numbers as opposed to each doing their own. And let's face it, we're lawyers and we're pretty good with the numbers, but you know what? We're not financial professionals. That's right. And it's much more efficient to be able to bring in those professionals who can look at those issues, distill the one set of numbers, the one net family property statement with maybe a couple of questions for them to resolve, and then they're going to be able to find that answer because that's the information that the judge would use anyway. So that's a great thing that once they've had their nose bruised enough times from hitting that wall, I think they're going to be ready to consider something else, especially if we can give them something on top of what they are not currently getting, not just representation of the lawyers, but let's bring in the team members. If there's parenting issues, let's bring in the family professional to start looking at options that they haven't even thought about. Because unfortunately, in court, it tends to be an either-or situation, whereas they can come up with their own version with the assistance of a family professional. And that's where I think we can really add to the process, give them something court can't give them, and that becomes enticing. You start wrestling control back too, yes. from the court, from the lawyers, and all of a sudden their goals and interests become paramount. I, I'll get cases that are already in court come into the office and they retain us, and the first thing I do is I'll phone the other lawyer or Fitzgerald will say, what do, we need, what do we need the court for? What are we doing here? Now, what are the issues that two experienced lawyers cannot solve? And sometimes it could be contents, right? Jarrett will say, my guy has to get his stuff out of the place before he can move forward. So we'll bring a family neutral and we'll get the contents resolved and then we'll pull it out of the court system. Or it could be finances, right? We'll have a case that there's disclosure issues. Well, the lawyers can come up with a plan to deal with disclosure. They don't need orders of the court unless it's a third party. Bring in a financial neutral, and the way I sell it to clients is you're saving expense. You're going to get one document brief prepared for both counsel. Both parties are going to participate. We're going to get all the records. We could produce our own brief, and it's going to cost twice as much. Uh, Jared's going to produce his own brief, and then Jared and I are going to do this merry-go-round of, I don't have this document, and he'll say, well, you didn't read my letter, it was in the letter, and <laughs> there'll be a back and forth, and uh, so I sell it in terms of, although it seems, it could seem overwhelming and expensive at first when we start talking about team, when you start explaining the process, they can see that they're going to save money doing it collaboratively. And so we find that the meetings you know, get more efficient and shorter 
as we proceed because once they've built that initial track record using collaborative process, they intend to have a further buy-in and be interested in helping themselves, yeah. which yeah. really, you're right, in court, you're not helping yourself. You're asking a third party here, the judge, who you may not face for many months down the road to ultimately decide on basically papers and that's really what yeah. you're putting in front of the judge versus you know yourself best you know the other party best and the two of you really know your best solution and occasionally we'll get uh, a party who sticks their head in the sand or doesn't want to deal with something and it's you know part of human nature when you're dealing with conflict to try to avoid it um, so I'll represent somebody, they're not responding, we go to court, it proceeds uncontested. Uh, and then we move to a Rule 23 hearing, and then the judge will oftentimes say, reserve it. And then the party will finally realize, okay, this is it, I need to respond. And oftentimes, that's when they get a lawyer involved, and that's a great opportunity to pull the case out of court. Jared and I have had one where we pulled it out um, there was some time issues, some health issues with respect to my client. We had to go to the hospital to do the collaborative meetings there, but we were able to do it very quickly within weeks and get the case settled. Uh, had we waited for the Rule 23 hearing to proceed and a decision from the judge two, three months down the road, it would have been too late. My client was terminal, she ended up dying, but she was able to resolve the matter in accordance with her wishes. So very flexible and a very open way to um, pull it out of court. Inability to mobilize quickly. That's right. Right, you Which can't a court get that cannot in. do. Right. And a court's not gonna go to the hospital to conduct a hearing. That's right. right. Very unlikely. Yeah. yeah. Certainly not within two weeks. No, no, that was uh, excellent. I think another huge advantage that I sometimes maybe don't speak to my clients enough about is the ability to be heard in the collaborative process. Right. How many times have our clients said, you're eight months into a, a litigation case at court, say, I haven't even got to talk to the judge yet. Yeah. And they don't realize going in that it could be months before they get to say anything. Uh, the reality is, in, in the way the court is structured, is unless you're having an oral hearing or, or a trial, um, they don't do a lot of caucusing with but the judge. But even in a collaborative setting, we have clients who feel like, I didn't get hurt during that meeting. Right. So we'll start the next meeting by talking about their issues first. Right. And right. they sometimes prepare a two, three spe page speech and they want, this is, they need to say this. Yeah. This is important to them. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with any, any of the legal settlement, but right. it's part of the healing process, I suppose, for a lot of people. Well, I think that's a really valid point about the opportunity to be heard, because if you think about what we have to do in court, it's really against the clients being heard. I mean, they have to tell us their position, we have to put it into materials, the judge reads it, and then when we make submissions, it's the lawyers who are making the submissions on the second-hand information that their clients have given them. Whereas, and we won't put in, we will sanitize the materials we're filing with the court That's to right. take a lot of that emotion out because our judges have said that doesn't belong here. We don't want to be seeing that. Give us just the facts. So really that opportunity for that party to say to the other party, 
something even as simple as when you did that, yeah. that really hurt me and makes it difficult for me to trust you with the credit card again, for example, you know, they would never have that opportunity. They really don't because even if they are testifying in court, they're testifying about the issues and there's really no place for them to express those feelings. Whereas if they can start with some of those issues and they can be heard and the other party can actually share information back, they can really move along in, in not just closure but healing. And in many cases it's discouraged in court. Part of courtroom forum yes. is counsel will speak. If the client's standing up and shouting over their lawyer and saying, I want to talk about this, uh, the court frowns upon that and expects the lawyers to uh, maintain the decorum, which is sort of code for saying your, your client's not here to speak, you are. That's right. That right. is the expectation. And, and it's really, I mean, our, I, I find our judges extremely patient and, and kind to our clients, but it's time. They don't have time when there's 30 matters on the docket. That's right. They don't have time to listen about explanations about issues that may not be relevant to the business we're at, at hand. When and they'll specifically court. say, I don't do pots and pans. We're right. not dividing the cutlery out. That's right. This I, is an inefficient use I of just, court resources. I just had a question. Are we supposed to kiss up to the judges like you've done twice so far, Jared? <laughs> or was that just how you usually are? Jared's worried that law societies can be reviewing this recording later. <laughs> Lita and I will be subject to discipline, and he'll get, he'll get an award. <laughs> but to Ilita's point, um, exactly, I, I, I know we've all had these files. I had a case where it was extremely high conflict. It was a collaborative file, and, was, and um, we pulled it out of court, and my client wanted to read an apology letter to his former spouse. And until he got to do that, he couldn't put his mind to support finances, couldn't put his mind to property division. He just couldn't move on unless he got this closure, this, this, this uh, off his chest. And once he was allowed to do that at a collaborative meeting, and once the other party was able to hear that, the file settled. We were able to deal with the business-like right. portions of the file, but uh, it, just like we were talking about, you just don't get that opportunity at court. Right. It's a very um, streamlined mechanical process with uh, very specific roles. Right. You know, in terms of creative and flexible results, um, you're not likely going to get it from a judge yeah. unless you go to trial. And even then, they're limited in the orders they can make. Yeah. But that's one of the things I, I tell my clients about deciding if we're going to do the runaway train and pull it out of the court process. The reality is having that court process there, file I'm thinking of, uh, Russell, file we're on, where we pulled it out of court, um, we didn't agree on a legal issue. And that's the reality right. clients need to know is sometimes your lawyers are not gonna agree on uh, a certain legal issue. We did it in a professional's caucus, not in front of the clients because we didn't want our clients emoting our positions, right? That's right. Yeah, but, but we, we told the clients there was a disagreement. And, and then because there was a disagreement on a very tricky legal issue, we actually put that to a judge when we were up there at, at court. On other matters. And uh, exactly, and the judge was kind enough, and again, I'm trying not to kiss ass well, here, but. the third time. Sure. <laughs> he was Make kind, part of your DNA. He was kind enough to give us a judge's opinion on a collaborative file that we were working on. He took, carved out 10 yep. minutes to sit down and read a brief that we had put together a and gave minute, us. A two-page summary, yeah. Gave us a, a, an opinion on a very tricky, tricky legal issue that we could then take back to the clients in the collaborative process. And also directed us to some case law, which was That's helpful right. as well. Yeah. 
is excellent. Yeah. So if we had to do that um, in a pure litigation setting, that would be nine months to get that opinion. And here we're able to do it within days. Yeah. I think not only the nine months, Russ, but the other issue is that the parties really, when they're going to court, aren't stating a compromise position. They're stating the position, the, the full tilt position that they're trying to achieve. In collaborative, we can actually say to them, well, would that extra night really be such a problem for you? Or I'm okay with this, I'm just not okay with that. Okay, let's come up with a model that works for that. Why is it sole custody for you or or for him or a 50-50? What about some other version of that that could work? I don't really object to Tuesday night. Great, let's look at bringing Tuesday night into it. Yeah. That's not something that I think judges are there to do because they're there to make a decision. They're being given two options and they usually are going to pick one or the other of those options. And obviously if they get professional recommendations, they're gonna follow largely what the professionals are telling them. So this opportunity to be creative, to tailor make the solution to the specific needs of the parties is what brings should be bringing them back into collaborative again. Yeah. But we also have to realize in high conflict cases that there's high conflict for a reason. That's the reason of the dynamics between the parties. Now, I also have a theory that no one should be allowed to go to court for six months just because the level of conflict is so high in those first six months. Unfortunately, the plan wouldn't work because there's some things that need to be worked out in that six month period. Mm -hmm. but Finances, exactly. payments. But inevitably, once they've had a little bit of this cooling off period, they're much better able to sit down and start to say, okay, this is reality now, how are we gonna deal with our reality? And that could line up nicely with the timing of them having started a court process and having attended even a first case conference. That's pretty well gonna eat up the first six months into their process where they now need to do something or they've accepted, this is our future now, what do we do to make it our best possible? future mm -hmm. as individuals and as a family. Mm -hmm. yeah, Those are great point. points, yeah. And I also find that um, in terms of going to court, it's not necessarily uh, exactly predictable, no matter how good your lawyer is. And the example of you were just talking about with respect to access and parenting times. Uh, sometimes a judge will give an order that nobody's asking for and make it so unpleasant for both of them they won't want to come back to court. Uh, it doesn't happen always, but my point is you can't exactly predict what the outcome is going to be. Financial issues, it's a little bit more certain. Parenting time is a lot more gray area, and you simply don't know. And You don't know your judge, right? You, you may have a motions court judge come in from out of town. You may not be familiar with their approach or their style, and you may get a result that you didn't expect. So if the professional didn't expect it, the client is certainly going to uh, be surprised by the outcome and likely upset. But I also find, I'm going to do my share of kissing up here because Jared's taking it all, <laughs> that when we do approach case management judges and say, here's what we'd like to do in terms of pulling it off the list or putting it on hold because we want to try it collaboratively, they're more than happy to get the case off their docket and will certainly accommodate you. Um, in terms of your request, especially if both parties are represented by counsel. Yeah. Um, and like Jarrett said, they're also there as a sounding board, which is by doing a, a hybrid approach, uh, you don't necessarily get 
and we have a fairly good track record of trying to predict where the impasse is going to come from. But like Jarrett said, you never know what's going to be important to the client for, to enable them to move on. Yeah, that's a good point, Russ. Yeah. So this has been a great discussion today, you guys. I really appreciate your input. Um, any closing remarks? Jarrett, you want to go first? Um, sure. I just think um, people need to remember that there's a lot of reasons a court action gets started. Um, a lot of times it's by necessity. We, we have to look at statute of limitations. Sometimes there's concerns around uh, the timing. Maybe they've been separated for a couple years and there's some worries around that. A lot of time as so we... So when you say statute of limitations, you're saying a limitation period's going to run out and your rights are going to expire. That's right. right. Sorry. Uh, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, a lot of times it's two, six, or ten years for the limitation period for that party to bring those claims forward and have them heard. So sometimes people are worried about that, so they'll put it in court. A lot of times because they just haven't heard back from the other party. A lot of time, I would say at least 75% of our files, I call the one party the pusher. There's always the party who's, who's more eager to deal with the issues than the other party, and that person is usually the one who goes to see a lawyer first. So sometimes when letters are sent out, they don't get responded to and that's why the court action gets started. It doesn't get started because that client wants to hammer the other side and make them lose everything. It gets started because the reality is these things need to be dealt with. And then uh, when that other party finally does respond, it's a great time to pull it out of court. So people should know that you're not always locked into court. There's other options there. and, and as I always say, I would consider collaborative process the Cadillac of those other options, and it can be the most cost-efficient and um, the probably um, the most uh, value for uh, the cost of a family dispute resolution process, I would say, in, in my opinion. So I'll close with that. But Great thanks for having me. Willina? I just uh, think that we are on the forefront of some new opportunities to come up with additional dispute resolution mechanisms. We've even seen things like the Voice of the Child report now that has been legislated that the courts can actually do essentially what we might have a family professional do for us. So we're seeing more and more of this opportunity for resolution. I think it really falls back onto the lawyers to educate because you're absolutely right, Jared, they might have gone to court because they didn't know that there was any other option. And as lawyers, not only can we encourage different processes to be used, I find it's really important to let the client know that even if we are moving into a collaborative process, you're not losing me fighting for you. I'm still fighting for you in collaborative. And I think a lot of the perception is that, no, we just all work together and nobody actually fights for anybody here. We all work as a team. But of course, the issues, when we're putting forward the interests and we're talking about what the expectations are, that is that opportunity to say, let me help you with that. Either let me help you speak, let me help you bring forward the information, let me help you bring in the resources that we need so that the full picture can be presented. And I really enjoy having the opportunity to use all of the tools that are available to us to really assist our clients. And that's, thank you for that's a great point. You know, people forget, even if you're doing it collaboratively, it's not all kumbaya, we're not running across the road to hug a tree and hold hands. 
we're still providing a legal framework and doing a legal analysis and advice and you're still acting as an advocate but within a collaborative setting uh, and a, go, a focus on resolution. So great tips, Walida. Great stuff, Jarrett. Uh, I think I'd just close out by saying don't become a tenant of the courthouse like that family I talked about when we opened our comments up who ended up going to court 65 times. Uh, if you're in court now, certainly speak with a collaborative lawyer or do some research on it. Ask some questions, see if it's going to be a right fit for your family. We hope that you found this podcast informative and thank you for listening.